Welcome to episode number 28 of the Circles Off podcast. I'm Rob Pizzola, joined by Johnny from Betstamp. And this week, we welcome in a very special guest. I'd call him a friend of ours, um, someone who lives close proximity, does a number of different things. For those who follow him on Twitter, at Plus EV Analytics, very sharp guy in the community, very polarizing figure in the community as well. We welcome in Matt. Matt, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? Doing well, doing well. Um, let's just start with a quick background on you, Matt. I know for obviously a lot of the, the consumers of this podcast are, um, they probably actively follow you on Twitter or encountered you in some capacity, but there's a lot of people out there that haven't. So just a brief background on uh, on who you are and uh, what you do in the betting space. Sure. Uh, my name is Matt. I go by Plus EV Analytics uh, on Twitter and professionally. Uh, I am an actuary by day. And uh, my, my kind of uh, side hustle slash second job is a, I'm a, I guess you could call a semi-pro gambler as well as uh, author, consultant. Um, my, my biggest passions in life are sports, mathematics, and gambling. So I, I've, uh, I think I've kind of found this niche for myself as a, kind of a, a, a mathematical expert in the in the gambling space and on gambling twitter and uh fortunate enough to have over the years gotten uh, a pretty uh decent following of people who listen to my stuff read my stuff and uh just doing what i do every day i'd say so on a matt, personal go ahead go ahead johnny i was gonna say thanks for coming on matt obviously you're uh what we'd call a big math guy in the community so we've read a bunch of your articles and interacted with them and a uh, lot of lot of great stuff in there in terms of different formulas different ways to look at things uh what i think the people want to know what i'd like to know is you know in today's day like you mentioned you're an actuary where do you get your edge from sports betting is it through the the mathematical modeling do you have any other things and again only share what you're comfortable with here don't you know we don't want to blow up everything but uh let's let's hear it yeah and my, my edge does come from mathematical modeling um not at all to say that this is the only way of uh getting an edge in sports betting there are lots of people out there who are having success uh, doing this lots of different ways. But for me personally, the, the mathematical modeling is, is where I get my edge. Historically, I have uh, done a lot within the Canadian lottery system in, in different provinces, taking advantage of stale lines, correlated parlays, mispriced props, um, things like that. And those things have kind of gradually eroded uh, over, over the years. So I'm always on the lookout for, for anything out there um, where the books might be mispricing something or making a mistake. And there are a couple examples of those in the last year or two that I've, that I've written about uh, on my site. But just keeping my eyes open, keeping my ear to the ground, uh, getting involved with a lot of really great people and experts in different domains such as yourselves, and uh, just, just doing what I do. One of my personal favorite articles of yours, Matt, was something you wrote before the NFL season last year, uh, and it was in regards to playing alternate season win totals and rooting for chaos. Um, if you remember that one specifically, where you'd, you'd end up with a lot of positions on um, great NFL teams to be under very low win totals uh, in the situations where like a quarterback gets injured or something like that. And that was uh, when I first started consuming your content in general. But um, I guess my belief, or I don't know you like really well on a personal level and in, in explicitly what you're betting on, 
but it seems to me like you're someone who's gaining an edge in a lot of these alternative markets right now and searching for things that maybe are not necessarily standing out to the average everyday better. Would that be fair to say? Uh, it certainly was fair to say with regard to last year's NFL season. So I did write that article and, and actually had uh, quite a good year betting those alternative team totals. Uh, I think Philly under four and a half at 50 to one was uh, was the, the biggest success that I had. Um, ended up being probably the most expensive article I ever wrote because when I went to look at it this year, um, all of those edges were, were just gone. And so for the first time in about at least three years, I have no action in my portfolio on, uh, on NFL team totals. Um, do I regret writing the article? Some days I do, but that's just kind of how I operate where, where I, um, being somebody with a full-time job and two young kids, my ability or free time to get this stuff down on my own is limited. So I am fortunate enough to have worked with some really great partners over the years who, who are able to use my stuff to, to get down and form a partnership. And the only way these people know who I am um, is by giving out this free content. So it, it is a trade-off and, and there's definitely some short-term pain. I, 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 to be honest, I didn't expect the books to adjust as quickly uh, or, or as significantly as, as they did. It's nice to know people are out there either reading my articles or, or learning from my bets, um, but it just means I've got to find something new to, to move on to. I like I like those articles as well. Um, I'm a reader myself, and you can definitely find some good info out there. I was going to ask you. So yeah, it seems like you know you give that out, and then the edge goes away, like you just mentioned. Is there anything else you're working towards with this style of content? I guess we can bridge it into the content that's in the space right now. I don't think there's anybody else producing more of the mathematical side of things. Um, you know, is there anything you plan to do with that moving forward? Any any growth path? Uh, so I, I continuing to write articles on, on anything that either pops into my head or gets recommended by my followers. I've got a new one out in the last week about uh, the, the sharp book model and the soft book model and what the difference is between the two of them. That's uh, sort of trying to, to unpack the controversy of, of why soft books exist and how ethical or unethical they, they might be. Um, I am also going to be teaching a course starting in January, and we can get into more about this uh, later if you like, on uh, a site called analytics.bet, um, founded by Professor Harry Crane and a couple of other people who have had really good success teaching kind of an introductory course to advanced analytics in, in sports betting. And I'm going to be uh, teaching their second course offering which is called Bayesian sports betting. And that will be started in January. So I've got that going on, continuing to write articles, continuing to, to look for uh, my own betting edges where I can find them as, uh, as well as holding down my day job. So these are, these are busy times for plus EV analytics. As um, okay, I'm, I'm not trying to go scorched earth on you here and that's not my intention, but this is often a common criticism of people who are in the content space or who are doing uh, courses in the sports betting space in general, where people would say, well, why am I going to pay or consume content, even if it's free, um, from someone who is like looking to help me? And like, why would someone give away their edge? So I, I just kind of want to get into a little bit more of the motivations of why you do your content specifically, Matt. And if you feel that in the long run, it is a big detractor from your bottom line, or if you just generally want to help people, just a little bit of background on 
on how you kind of go about that balance. Uh, because I mean, I experience a lot of the same in, in doing weekly video content where I get a lot of criticism of like, well, why would Rob publicly give this out when, um, you know, he's a better himself, probably going to reduce his edge over time. So just curious your thoughts on that. It's a good question. And I think part of it is I do enjoy the challenge of taking something that is complicated and breaking it down and explaining it so that people who don't necessarily have a math degree can understand it. So I, I get a lot of, of personal fulfillment out of doing that, even if sometimes it comes at the expense of giving information I probably shouldn't be giving. Um, but a lot of the stuff I give out isn't so much, you know, here's who you should bet, but it's more methodology stuff. Here's how you might want to build a model. Here are some things you might want to look at. And that's really what this course is going to be through analytics.bet. You know, I'm, I'm really not going to be giving away models. I'm going to be giving examples of things you might want to look at or ways you might want to build your own model. So I, I think I'm giving you the, the tools, um, but in order for this to be sustainable, it can't just be kind of plug and play. Otherwise, the same thing will happen that happened with these NFL season total. Anything I give will be instantly uh, evaporated. It, it's more about giving modelers a toolbox and a way of looking at data and in particular, a way of looking at what I call small data, because so much of the world these days focuses on big data. But when you are doing sports analytics and sports betting modeling, your concern is small data a lot more than it is big data, because you have a lot of things that come in that are small sample sizes where you can't use them entirely because they're small sample sizes and they have so much random variance in them. At the same time, you can't ignore them because they do mean something. And so there's a whole suite of tools and techniques around how you can accurately use small data and small sample sizes uh, to, to make good conclusions and build good models. And I think it's really an underexplored uh, area of, of analytics, both in, in the so-called academic literature and in all the content available right now, you know, on Twitter or people's blogs, there's a lot of content out there but this really is an under-covered uh, area, which is why I, I hope to capitalize on that with some of my content on, uh, on my blog and also this course I'm gonna be teaching. Do you think it's undercovered because there's not enough content creators that are able to create this type of content? Or do you think it's because the market just gravitates towards the existing style of content that's out there, whether that's just basic picks or previews of games? I'm wondering if you think that there's actually a demand for the type of content that you want to create. Yeah, I think mathematical content, in particular, this small data stuff, it, it's under it's undercovered because it's not the type of thing that a lot of people really um, know how to do. Like, if you're giving out picks, you can BS your way through giving out a set of picks. I'm not saying you do this, Rob, but in in general. Uh, well, you know what, Matt, like, sorry to, to, to cut you off. I mean, there is a, a truth to that in general, because the reality is I could just give out my number on every game and that's where it ends. I am trying to fill content by explaining why my number is what it is, but that's not even necessary, really. It could be, I like the Seahawks because I make the game a pick them and the line is plus three, but I find that 
you kind of lose credibility in that way. And people are always looking for some sort of rational rationalization of why you like the side rather than it's just my number. That doesn't make sense to a lot of people, right? This is my number on the game that I'm going to bet it. Right. And, and there is and will always be a, a probably a majority of consumers of betting content that don't know, don't want to know and don't care about the mathematical side of things. Um, but I think there are enough people who do um, that, that there is at least some demand for this content. And it's not something that a lot of people know how to do, especially a lot of this Bayesian small data stuff is not really something that is taught all that well anywhere. Um, I was fortunate enough to be exposed to it in the actuarial exam, the actuarial education curriculum, and they teach it to you and they don't even really realize how broadly applicable this stuff is to fields such as sports betting. So I think it's, it's a bit of a niche for me having had that background and that education and the ability to apply it and the ability to explain it in these, con in these contexts that it wasn't necessarily originally intended for, but it is quite useful for. So, so I think I, I, I have this, this knowledge and this skill. I'm not saying I'm the only person in the world who has it, but I think there, there is a, a pretty small minority of people who know how to do this and an even smaller minority of those who have the ability to communicate it in a relatable and approachable way. So that's what I'm doing. Do you think there's, okay, so for, you know what? I'm going to back up and say, first off, uh, articles are great. I think the course format is something that is going to work really well for you moving forward. Because when I look at a lot of the content, um, listen, like I could, I will say like, I understand it and I read through, but sometimes it's stuff that even I have to read through a second time. And that's someone who, you know, has, has like typically no trouble reading odds or things like that. And I'm still oftentimes like, Hey, I got to read this again to make sure I understand. So the course format, more education style, I think works for you. What I was going to ask is, have you ever considered potentially, you know, quote unquote, dumbing down the content a little bit where it's not necessarily, Hey, here's the picks. And it's maybe it doesn't even have picks attached to it. But, um, you know, like I'm, I'm refer referencing your, your season win total article uh, for or, or your MLB futures, like total home runs and things like that. Like that was an awesome article because you explained kind of what it was in an easy way and then gave attached picks to it at the end. I think that style of content could be big. Curious on your thoughts on if you if you've, you know, considered dumbing it down a little to make it more mainstream. Um, it's, it's a good question. I think there's always a spectrum and it depends on the, the content that you're teaching. Um, I think the quote unquote, more dumbed down you make it, yes, the more accessible it is, but also the, the, the less sustainable any edge you're going to get is, is out of this. So you always want to have some kind of barrier to entry where the more difficult something is, the more likely you are to be able to make money at it for a sustained period of time. So I mean, my, my, my intent is to provide content for all levels of better from, from the total newbie to the seasoned pro. And I, I try and, and, and uh, create my content in a way that it, it crosses that spectrum. But you know, different applications will have uh, sort of different levels of complexity of, of the content you want to put out there. It all depends on what it's being used for. But it, it's, it's like climbing a mountain. The, the, the taller the mountain, the fewer other people are going to be able to climb it with you the more of an accomplishment it is um, to say you climb Mount Everest and you climbed you know, the, the hill down the street and it will be more rewarding in the long term for you as well to put that extra effort in. Yeah, I think I agree for the most part. Uh, what I wanted to ask you was if you look at it in today's day, 
what are a few things, maybe, you know, one or two things that you would love to get across to all betters that would help all betters? Like, you know, two easy things. This is what all betters can do to improve. Like, what would you give as your advice, you know, considering that you're coming from a spot where you're more advanced, but what's, what are basic things people can do? I think the biggest mistake that either amateur betters or even the less mathematically inclined serious betters tend to make is to not be able to think probabilistically. So they think, you know, the, the Giants are going to win this game and I'm going to bet them or the Giants are going to lose this game and, and I'm going to fade them. But gambling and sports betting in particular operates in the world of probabilities. No outcomes are certain. All outcomes are uncertain. So you have to think about, well, what is the likelihood that Giants are going to win? And how does that compare to the odds that I'm being offered? And so much of the content I see out there, even the sharper content, is, is more, quote unquote, deterministic, where it's about, here's what I think is going to happen. And here's why I think it's going to happen. Um, it's, it's an easy thing to say, but a hard thing to do to train yourself to think in terms of uncertainties and probabilities. But, you know, if I had to suggest one kind of mindset shift that would be beneficial to betters of all levels, um, that that would be it. I think that's a really good one. Um, I think one of the things that I constantly preach as part of like uh, an educational practice for people is to always come up with their own line on a game before they actually look at what the sports book is offering. Because I think too often people, especially this happens in the NFL where you have a very uh, large gap between games, you have a full week between games, you really only remember what you saw last week and people kind of watch a game and they're like, I can't wait to fade this team next week or I can't wait to bet on them. Well, that's great. How do you say that without knowing what number you're betting them at? And I think this is a common you know, malpractice by the recreational better just in general. So uh, I'm glad you use that as an example, Matt, because I think that's a really good one. Yeah, that, that's definitely true. And I, I love that idea of making the number before you look at the lines because the human brain takes has, has so many kind of pre-programmed shortcuts in it. You could talk for two hours about cognitive biases uh, and how they influence betters, but it's a great little trick to keep yourself from anchoring on the line that you see if you make your own line. And, and to even extend beyond that, Rob, I would say if you make the line four and the true line is six, then yeah, that's probably a good spot for you to go ahead and bet, assuming you know what you're talking about and you're right. If you make the line four and the line is 14, I wouldn't bet that because more likely than not, you missed something because you're, you, it's probably not likely that you're off that much and you're right and the market is off by that much. So there's a, there's a spectrum there as well where you have to sort of keep yourself in check about how much you think you know better than the market. That that's a really interesting one, and I think there's very different schools of thought on that in general. Uh, because obviously, there's in order to profit, you really only need to be directionally correct, right? Now it depends on how you're staking your bets. So if you're using uh, a Kelly criterion as an example, or you're not flat staking, then yeah, certainly if you make a game four and the spread is fourteen, you're going to end up very exposed on that side. But the reality is, if you make a game of four, the spread is fourteen and the true probability is really somewhere around true numbers really somewhere around 10 you're still you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't bet that game so there is that school of thought as well there there is and i guess it would come down to to is it possible to be directionally right but magnitudinally so wrong 
and, and there's no right or wrong answer to this. We can, we can debate this stuff all day. Um, but to me, the more magnitudally off you are, the less likely you are to be even directionally right, because there's obviously something massive that you missed. And, and you know, it, it would take some convincing to say, okay, well, the line isn't off by 10 points. Maybe it's off by two in, in the right direction, where if, if my method or my numbers gave me a relatively small edge to the market, I would be more inclined to believe that as being real. Makes sense. I think, yeah, uh, some other advice for people, we've mentioned it before, but you got to also factor in that you could bet on either team at a given number, right? So thinking probabilistically, like Matt's saying, um, you know, there's never a scenario in which someone could ask you, you know, what's the pick for tonight's game and, and you be able to give an accurate, you know, representation of what to bet on without knowing the odds first. So when Matt's saying thing probabilistically, in ne- you should never be saying, oh, Bucks are going to win tonight for sure. You have to say, you know, the Bucks have an 85% chance of winning, in my opinion, and they're being priced in the market at a 75% chance of win. Uh, therefore, I have, you know, an edge there. That's, I think, what um, a lot of rookie bettors could, you know, benefit from. And thinking probabilistically, like Matt mentioned, is probably the main way there. Yeah, it sounds stupid simple just us, us talking about it because obviously no one knows that the, the Bucks are going to win. But it, you're, you're right, it is something that, that a lot of recreational bettors don't think about. Now, it opens up a different problem when you say, okay, I'm going to think probabilistically, at, at, at what number do I estimate the Bucks' probability of winning? Because the human brain is not really wired to be good at judging probability. So you sort of trade one set of problems for another, but at least that leads you into the world of analytics and modeling and, and how can you come up with a way to quantify those probabilities through some better method than just making up a number in your head. Got it. So we're going to go on and talk about Kelly Criterion now. And before we do so, I'm going to give a brief overview for any of the newer listen, listeners or, or, or rookie listeners. So essentially the principle behind this, and Matt, you can correct anything I'm saying here that you feel is, uh, is incorrect, but the principle behind it is when you're betting uh, and you believe you have a certain edge, it's very irresponsible and um, you know should, you shouldn't be betting the same amount on every single bet because others have different probabilities of winning. So there's got to be some sort of, and I'm, I'm giving a really high level overview, but there's got to be some sort of formula you could use to determine what the optimal bet size is per bet. So if you have a 10% edge here, you should be betting X. If you've got a 5%, you should be betting X. And uh, there's something called the the Kelly staking method, which what it does is it factors in not only what your edge or what your perceived edge is on that game, but also what the odds are uh, and what your total bankroll is and recommends a percentage of your bankroll that you should be staking based on this method per, you know, odds that you have, edge that you think you have. And this method is widely debated in the community as, you know, what should I do it? How should I use it? Uh, Matt is a guy who I know has talked about this before, has written about this before, and has more knowledge on this subject than a guy like me or, or even Rob. So we wanted to get your opinion on A, first off, was that an accurate description if there's anything else you want to add? But B, you know, when should you use this? Why does it work like this? Uh, anything you can add for the listeners and myself included, I'd love to hear the answer. So the Kelly criterion, I mean, you're, you're right, Johnny, you, you, you explained it very well, and I have nothing to add on, on your explanation. Um, I'll say a couple of things about my use of the Kelly criteria that, that might seem contradictory, but I'll explain in a second. Number one is that I have 
use the Kelly Criterion a lot over my betting career. And the other is, I think the Kelly Criterion is overused in a lot of cases today. And the reason for that is, in order for the Kelly Criterion to apply, there are two conditions you have to meet. One is you have to be facing a series of repeated bets because the whole point of the Kelly Criterion is to grow your bankroll exponentially over time. So you have to have the same opportunities to bet over and over and over again for the, for the math to make sense. The other thing, which is more important, is you have to know your edge and you have to know it precisely. So if I offer you plus 105 on a coin flip, you know what your edge is. But if I offer you plus 105 on a football game that you price as a pickup, well, you're going to calculate your edge as the same as in the coin flip example. The only problem is that number that you're coming up with, that pickup is an estimate. And every estimate is subject to estimation error. And that error could be in either direction. But what tends to happen is that misestimation of your edge in more cases than not, will tend to uh, cause you to overbet using Kelly criterion. And that's why some people like to use fractional Kelly, they bet a quarter Kelly or a half Kelly, either for that reason or because they're uncomfortable with the, the, the swings that you get from betting full Kelly. Now, there are not many situations where in a sports betting context, you know your edge precisely enough to comfortably bet full Kelly. I happen to have had access to one of them over the years. And again, it goes back to the Ontario uh, Lottery Corporation where you're betting into stale lines. So all you have to do is compare their style, stale lines against the current live lines. And as long as you assume that the current market is, is at least somewhat efficient, you know that if I'm betting lines that are 10% off market, my edge is 10% less the big. Um, in addition to that, you, you had to bet uh, parlays of three games or more. So what you get is you get a menu of eight, nine, 10 different games that are plus EV. You have to bet them in combinations of three. So you're starting to make a whole bunch, you know, 50, 60 different combinations of bets, each of which having its own EV and there being significant correlation among those 50 or 60 combinations because they have a lot of individual legs in common. So this led me to, to study the Kelly Criterion in probably more detail than a lot of people would have studied it. And it also led me to publish uh, the article about the, the so-called generalized form of the Kelly Criterion, which is useful when you have either multiple simultaneous bets or you make a bet and then you make a, a, a hedge bet or something the next day or you're you're betting in progress where you have existing exposure to a game and you either want to add or reduce your exposure. So these are all cases where the simple sort of edge over odds times bankroll um, method doesn't really apply, but you can extend the Kelly criteria to something a little bit more mathematically rigorous that will work in the same way for those kind of situations. Right. Now, just out of curiosity, so you use the example of um, having the stale line, right? And basically just comparing to the market closing price. Does that not, though, have the same issue in the sense that, like, we, in order for that to work properly, you have to assume that the closing line is the true probability of what is going to happen? We know it's the truest probability that we have. We just don't, it's like, it's using your coin flip comparison earlier, your dice roll. 
there's still an element of uncertainty in that closing line. You know what I'm getting at? I, I do know what you're getting at, and I'm, I'm getting, I'm, I'm sort of reaching the edge of, of my my philosophical knowledge of, of how this stuff works. But my own take on it, and people who are listening can feel free to correct me, is if you're betting into a stale line, say it's plus 500, and the current market line is plus 400, and so you quantify your edge using the, the comparison of those two numbers, yeah, it's true. That plus 400 could move to plus 410 at the close. It could move to plus 390 at the close. It could move to you know in any magnitude in either direction of where it is right now. But as long as it's equally likely to move in any direction, and as long as that movement is uncorrelated with the number you're actually getting, then I believe the Kelly criterion is still fully applicable. Um, and and it seems, it's kind of like you, know, you, you draw a card from a deck, but before you draw it, you shuffle it again. Well, you, you've added more randomness. But you haven't really changed the distribution of, of, of possible outcomes. So I believe the Kelly criterion is, is still applicable in that case, as long as you assume no correlation. So as long as you assume that that the the Ontario lottery book that's giving me the plus 500 doesn't have any information, the market doesn't, which is usually a pretty fair assumption, um, then I think you're still good. And I, I've, I have been proceeding over the years uh, under that assumption that, that you're still good. I think with Kelly, a lot of people feel overwhelmed in the sense that if you do like a quick search on Kelly criteria and you're going to see a lot of mathematical formulas, the average person is going to be confused. It's really not that difficult of a concept to understand. And at the end of the day, the average better somewhat applies Kelly without even really knowing that they are applying Kelly in the sense that if they really like a game a lot more than it being just a standard game, they're going to bet more on it. Um, and that's kind of like the principle of of Kelly, I mean, there, I, I'm I'm oversimplifying it. Don't get me wrong, but there are some inherent advantages for someone who already recognizes that I should be betting more on games where I have a larger edge to be able to formulaically do that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think that's kind of what we're trying to get across here. Yeah, that that that's certainly one thing. I think another thing that has sort of accidentally led players to do. Kelly-esque type bet sizing is American odds. And, and um, you know, we, we've had some good debates on Twitter. There, there are some you know, mathematical purists who think American odds are an abomination. Um, but I think there's actually some maybe accidental usefulness to it because the, the whole idea of, you know, you, you risk $100 when you're getting plus money and you bet to win $100 when you're getting minus money. That that is that sort of leads you towards a Kelly type staking method, um, much better than saying, "Hey, I'm going to risk $100 at minus 200, and I'm going to risk the same $100 at plus 200." So it, I think it, that there's been kind of a, a a side benefit of the proliferation of American odds, as, as mathematically unintuitive as as they are, um, they, they have probably led people to make. Um, at least less poor decisions than they would have otherwise made by accident. Makes sense. All right. Um, I want to get into the closing line value discussion because I know that you're a big proponent of it. Um, so for what, I mean, maybe I don't know that. I just sense that from your timeline in general and, and discussions that we've had in the past. But um, closing line value, uh, we've talked about this on the program before. In general, uh, we've talked about the efficient market hypothesis, which is that um, the closing price on a game is the truest indicator we have of, of what that probability is for the game. So in reality, as a sports better, 
what you want to do is beat the closing price as much as as possible. I don't know where you stand on closing line value, Matt, specifically in that if you think it's the be all and end all or a potentially a better overall view of whether someone's going to be a long-term winner than wins and losses, would, would that be something that you think is a better indicator? Yeah. So there is a lot of stuff going on here. And, and uh, I have an article about breaking down EV in terms of closing line value and all that other stuff. So whoever finds this discussion uh, helpful, I would, I would uh, suggest you go and, and check that out. But in, in, in short, closing line value has an advantage over win-loss record because win-loss record has a lot more random variance in it. And, and you need a lot larger sample size to um, be convinced that you are winning better if you're looking at straight wins and losses compared to uh, if you're looking at closing line value. So is closing line value useful? Yes, it is, especially if your betting record is small. If, if, if you've made 10,000 bets then your record on its own is probably good enough to, to stand uh, for itself. If you've made 10 bets and you went seven and three, well, that's great for you, but it doesn't really say much about, about uh, kind of your skill as a better where CLV um, actually might, even with a sample size as small as, as 10 or 20 bets. Now, is CLV the be all and end all? My answer would be yes and no, depending on what type of better you are. So if you, if you read someone like Spanky, um, he will tell you that, yes, CLV is the be-all and end-all, and CLV is the only path to winning. And that's absolutely true for someone like him, because the way he gets his edge is by reading the market, is by uh, chasing the steam, is by doing all those types of, of market things. And CLV is going to give you that feedback of, of, of whether you're, you're doing that well or not. The place where CLV is helpful but isn't necessarily a requirement is if you are an originator, if you're making your own numbers, then the, the amount of CLV that you get will be a function of how much the market is following your place. So if you are building a model and you're coming to the same conclusions that Rob Pizzola is, except that you're betting openers and, and, and Rob's bankroll is too big to bet openers. So he's betting the same things you're betting two days later, then yeah, that CLV will, will definitely um, be a positive signal for you. But if you are betting on something that nobody else in the market has, whether it's a different modeling technique, a different data source, heck, even if it's inside information, um, you know, the, the, uh, the Donahue guys, they probably didn't have CLV, but they, they won anyway, um, because if you know something that nobody else in the market knows, there is no natural reason why the market would necessarily follow your plays. So you won't necessarily end up with CLV, even though your plays are good. So if you're an originator, I would say CLV is a measure of the extent to which the market agrees with you, but the market doesn't necessarily have to agree with you in order for your players to be good. So what if you're an originator, um, but you've stepped up to the point where you're also now the total market maker for the, for the market. So you're the biggest originator for, uh, let's call it uh, MLB. And whenever something gets hit, you have the biggest bankroll of all. So whenever something gets hit, you're going to hit it back into place. What's the argument against that? Because by the way, I'm, I'm a big proponent of CLV. 
Um, I, we, Rob and I often debate this as well, but what's the argument? Cause that's the, the one counterpoint there with you. Yeah, I guess that's, that's the other case where you, you become such a big part of the market where you're really generating your own CLV by, by moving the numbers. And it reminds me back, uh, back in the day when Jim Cramer had a big show on CNBC and he would go on and tout a stock and the stock would bump 20% immediately because he recommended. So he was sort of creating his own, um, value in the market. And I think the same principles still hold because if somebody out there had a sharper number than you, they would, they would push back and they would give you resistance and, and push the number uh, back. But it is true that the, the bigger a market maker you get, the less important CLV becomes because it's just becoming a feedback loop where you're, you're, you're getting, uh, you know, according to yourself, your, your plays are good. And, and uh, I think if and when you ever get to that level, hopefully by that time you have enough of a record built up that you can actually start to focus less on CLV and, and more on your actual betting record. So I would say CLV is always good and it's always important, but depending on sort of where you sit in the market, um, the, 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 w whether you can win without it, I think depends on what you're doing. I will play a little bit of devil's advocate here in general. Um, so I, like you, Matt, at one point was a very staunch believer in CLV in the sense that I did consider it the be all and end all for everything I did. I basically, um, yeah, I became like addicted to CLV in a way, like it's just really weird, but it was almost all that I would look at. Um, and I, you know, I, I, I transformed from one point in life from a recreational better to a semi-pro better to eventually being a full pro. And I consumed a ton of information. And for me, it's very important to listen to other people who I respect in the space and who do this for a living. And they were all very much big believers in closing line value. Now that I'm heavily involved in specific markets, I can tell you specific things that I notice, which um, I guess have changed my mindset a little bit. So for example, early in an NFL week, I am going to do my best to figure out who two specific people are going to like in an NFL game. I don't want to go about the means of acquiring this information or what I do, but the reality is I know that there are two people specifically in this market that if they don't agree with the line at post, they are going to jam that line until it is what they think it should be, which at the end of the day makes the closing line of that game, whatever that group thought it was and not really an indicator of a market consensus. Now, in fairness, that group wins. So we know in the long run that that there's probably some, you know, there's some value in it. But to for the be all and end all and calling it like a market consensus and the truest probability, uh, a truest indicator of the probability of the game, that's where I have a real struggle with closing line value. Yeah, you're not wrong. I mean, it's, it's the, the, the church of closing line value, like any church, does require an element of faith. And mm -hmm. in this case, it, it's faith in the market. And, and you know, generally, markets have, have, have performed in a way that they seem to be deserving of that faith. But on any given day, in any given market, you know, all it takes is, is Elon Musk to wake up one day and decide he's going to be an NFL better. Right. And he's got so much capital that he's just going to jam the markets to wherever he wants them to be regardless of anybody else. And he's, he's not necessarily any sharper than any of us. So th there are things that could happen um, to push the markets out of efficiency. You would expect that over time, it would return to efficiency because whoever is out there screwing up the markets 
um, is probably going to lose over time. And eventually they're just going to lose so much that they're going to exit the market. So that's a long-term view, but I mean, you're right in in the short run. Either well, they I talked about the- this on a on a previous episode, Rob. I, I I mentioned so it was a question that we got asked on the last listeners episode, which was, um, you know, can someone beat the closing line long term, uh, or someone can can someone win long term with negative CLV? And my answer was over the long long term, CLV is great because it's it's a market theory that automatically corrects itself, it's like invisible hand, right? So right now. As Rob mentioned, there's going to be, let's say, a group or two that are going to jam the, the line at post for however much money it is. And whoever has the most money and whoever wants to bet the most is going to be able to shape that. But people got to realize, like, instinctively, whoever has the most money and wants to bet the most changes based on how much they win or lose betting. So if you continually lose, then A, you don't want to bet as much, and B, you now have less money. And contrary, the person who's winning, um, and obtaining that CLV and not jamming it at post is if they're winning, then they want to bet more. And then in turn, they're going to make more. So all in, you know, over one season, even two seasons, three seasons, if there's a large group right now, they're going to be able to survive a couple seasons, depending on, you know, how good the stuff is and how much they're betting. But at the end of the day, the shift of power there will vent. So like what, what Matt's saying with, with Elon Musk, if he comes in and he wants to just jam money into the market, then like ultimately what will happen is other sharp groups will hit that number back into place, win in the long run, and he'll just it'll just bleed back to a certain extent. Now, does Elon Musk have billions and how long will that take? Is it one lifetime? Maybe, maybe not. But in theory, uh, I do think all in, it's got to automatically correct, um, assuming that, you know, the person who's jamming at post doesn't have an edge and the market's incorporating that in. And lastly, if the person who is jamming that at post has an edge, then they've just impacted the closing line to the point where now that market is going to now factor that into the next line when it opens the next week. And therefore that person who has jammed the line at post is going to get less and less efficient. And therefore, you know, closing line value wins out overall. So that's, that's my theory. It's not a hundred percent. And with anything, cause I know Rob's probably brewing some stuff right now, but oh yeah, there is oh, Rob's definitely brewing some stuff. <laughs> I will say there's going to be exceptions here and there. Like I'm not talking about every single scenario. It matters because I don't agree with that myself, but for the most part, I do feel that's how it shakes out in the long run, but go, go, go ahead, Rob. Well, like, there's, there's, go ahead. There's certain markets, right? Like, so baseball is the, the, the most interesting one for me or the most fascinating one just in general, because we have two seasons within the last five years where you had one extremely prominent group in the market that is moving lines in a major way. And when I say in a major way, we're talking about four or five years ago, you'd see 30 to 40 cent moves on many games on the baseball board on a daily basis. And that was all based off of one group with, I would call it, pretty much unlimited liquidity. Now, if anyone bet that number back, they just hit it back the other way again. So at the end of the day, you have one group controlling an entire market. And the reality is if you faded every single one of those steam plays at the peak, you would have made a ton of money that baseball year because the true probability lied somewhere in between where they were originally taking the number and where it was closing. Is this Barry Horse? I've heard a lot no, of Barry Horse. No, stuff. no, no. Barry, Barry Horse is. Uh, I mean, he's in the market now, but that's more recent. The last couple of years, uh, I, I won't give away the the name of the a person I know specifically because, but but it was a very prominent um, offshore group uh, that was moving those numbers. So the reality is, anyone who noticed how far these numbers were moving, or saying, "Well, I'm just like games moving fifty cents with on no information," 
no new information. I'm just taking the other side and blindly fading those numbers made a killing those years and ended up with terrible closing line value in general, either zero or negative in some cases. And then you look at baseball this season in particular, and again, maybe we don't have enough sample of of uh, games, but it's a baseball season. There's a lot of games in a baseball season where almost anyone who's obtaining significant CLV in baseball this year is lost or or losing to the point where they have zero faith in in the closing number of the market anymore. Um, so I think we've seen at least, and, and it's not like baseball is small, right? Like this is a large market. This is a major sports market, and we're not talking about you know first inning, uh, yes no runs. This is the major market of the game where we have seen um, over the course of a half decade where the closing line really doesn't mean a whole lot for that specific sport. Yeah, these market processes, I I think I still have faith that they do correct themselves over time, but they can take a long time. Like back to Elon Musk, he could go on a heater, even though he could be a total square, he can go on a heater his first three weeks and it might take him three years to to realize he's not as good at this as he thought he was. So, you know, these, these things always do sort of hit equilibrium, but it can take a long, long time for that to happen. I'm going to agree there. I'm, I'm also just want to recap a lot of what I've said here um, because I'm, I, I'm not, um, I'm not against closing line value. I still very Rob much doesn't val- believe in CLV. doesn't believe in Kelly staking. He just, <laughs> he just free rolls DJ bets and that's it. <laughs> Hashtag no CLV. Pizzola. No, I actually do strongly think that it's worthwhile and worth measuring. I just do not consider it the be all and end all like certain people out there in the market. And I'll just throw it out there because it doesn't matter. He won't be offended that I say it, but Spanky will obviously regularly tweet about CLV being the be all and end all. He does things very differently from what I do. Um, He's not an originator though. So, so for him, it is the be all. and end all. Exactly. And that's what I'm getting at. Um, So it's very different for his process versus mine. But for me, oftentimes I, I I know that I'm not going to get CLV on a game specifically because someone else likes the other side and it doesn't bother me. And I'm still going to bet it because at the end of the day, if I'm not going to trust my number, then why am I even making numbers? Um, So exceptions to the rule for sure. I still think there's a ton of value in it. I just want to throw that out there as uh, uh, just before I get the the angry tweets of like, oh, for years you're talking about CLV and like track and it's still very, very useful. So a little uh, troll bait is always good for engagement. (laughs) To recap the last two topics. The best, the best CLV is is if you just win and CLV doesn't get factored in. Like, let's be honest here. Winning is more important than CLV for the, the short term. And, you know, for the long term, when people say like, hey, can you win without CLV? You still can do that. You may ob- eventually obtain CLV, but winning, uh, winning is first over a long enough sample size. CLV second. And then when we go back to Kelly staking, I'd say one thing I, I like to mention is the best form of a bankroll management and Kelly staking or things like that is to have a bankroll so big and to be betting into markets that won't allow you to bet enough to get overexposed. So if you've grown your bankroll so much and you know, the max you can get down on this game or this prop or this event is, you know, uh, less than 1% of your bankroll, then you're never going to have a problem with bankroll management because the market is not going to allow you to bet as much. So just for the recreational guy, what I'm saying is like, at first, you're going to want to use Kelly just to make sure you're doing it right. But once you've grown your bankroll to a multiple of that, um, you'll, you'll probably next be limited by the amount of money you can get down and not by the incorrect staking method that you might be using. Yep. Valid points. 
Um, let's shift gears here. Unless we do, we have any math questions that came directly from listeners, Johnny, as well that we want to just follow we, up on. We here? had a bunch of great questions came in. Some of them are actually still coming in right now. Uh, okay, you know what? This is a cool one. I think um, I wanted to ask because I'm interested in this as well. Somebody asked about hedging survivor pools. So for those who don't know, survivor pool, also known as eliminator pool, you, you pick all of the NFL teams. You pick one team a week. You can never pick the same team twice. If your team wins, you move on to the next week. If they lose, you don't. Um, so the strategy is you want a team that's going to win next week, but you also kind of want to plan out future weeks so that you don't get stuck where you're taking an underdog one week or where you have to take a bad team. Also, on top of that, for survivor pools, uh, strategy also comes in the game theory aspect because when you're playing a survivor pool, if you win, but 150 other people win, then your pot gets split over 15, or sorry, over 150. If you win and you're the only person that wins, you take the pot. So there is some you know, strategy in actually going contrarian in these pools. But anyways, the question is in regards to hedging this pool. So uh, if it's only, let's say, two guys left, I'm just reading the question off Twitter, uh, and you could wager uh, an in-play bet once you know what the other person uh, picked. So there's two guys left, you pick something, he picks something. Uh, would you wager an in-play bet that he loses? Like, where can we get some math on, on, on this? Like, what would you hedge a survivor pool? How, would you do it before the guy picks? Would you do it after he picks? What do you think? So technically, a survival pool is one of the easiest possible things to hedge because all you have to do is fade your own pick and you're usually going to be getting a pretty good plus money uh, underdog on the right. on the money line. Um, the hard part is that there's really no way that I can think of to do it where you won't guarantee that the amount you're putting out on the hedge, and this is you can you can keep doing this over the course of the season, but you may end up winning the pool but but losing more on your your failed hedges and you win on the pool. So you without doing a whole bunch of dynamic programming of, of sort of how the, how the season's going to play out. I wouldn't even really think about hedging until, you know, when, when you're near the end, say there's two players left, like the question asked, you can, you can hedge out your possibility that you're going to be eliminated this week by taking a parlay of, of uh, you know, the, the opposite of your pick plus the other guy's pick that only really gets you part of the way there because you might lose your, your hedge. Um, but uh, either you and the other guy both win or both get eliminated. And then you're, you're I think, are you on to the next week? If, if uh, there's two left left and they both get eliminated, do they chop the pot or does it continue to the next? I, I think it's a chop. I think it's a chop at that point. Okay. So, the, so that, that, that makes the math a little bit easier. Um, but, but it's, it's not something I've really ever looked at. I've, I've actually never done a survivor pool in my life until this year. Uh, I've got a friend who who convinced me to enter the, uh, the circus survival just because the overlay was uh, was so huge. So I, I put two entries in there. I've got one still alive at this point, and uh, I'm hoping I, I, I make it long enough to uh, to get to the point where I'm thinking about hedging. But we are a long way away. It's been a chalky start to the season in terms mm-hmm. of survival pools. So uh, there's a long long way left to go. I find survivor pools very interesting, even though I, I'm really not very like. I haven't had great results in survivor pools, but I think I'm better at them than everyone else because your main goal is really to maximize the EV of your plays over the course of a year, right? Like that's kind of what you're trying to do in terms of these are the probabilities the team is winning games. This is how, what percentage of the pool is going to pick them and trying to use that to calculate some sort of EV, incorporating some sort of future value as well. So it's really like fascinating from a math perspective to work through that, but 
people don't realize how much luck is involved in the NFL. Like it's pretty crazy. Even if you're you're using like a seven point favorite in a week, that's a team that's going to lose a quarter of the the time, and it could be on some random play and whatever. But I I think that for that reason, just um, the randomness of the NFL and the pool makes it very different to differentiate yourself uh, in a in a large pool size. Yeah, the game theory is certainly an interesting aspect of it and, and not really something that is, at least as far as I've found, solvable just using basic, basic math. It's, you know, it's kind of like poker where, mm-hmm. yes, you need math to win at poker, but math will only get you so far. Um, you know, there, there are aspects of it that, that, uh, that you have to go beyond just basic math. And that's, that's one of the reasons why I've never really got all that involved in, uh, in, in Survivor. Yeah, one I, I used to play a bunch of survivor pools. Uh, you know, did okay. I've won a cash one in my life. Reality is like I don't play them anymore just because I don't have the time on Sunday mornings. So much other stuff going on. But uh I would say one piece of advice, something I always use in survivor pools is like people like to save the teams they have and say, Ah, I'm saving Tampa for week ten because they're at home to the Jets. But the reality is like you don't know what the spread is gonna be in that game. You can project it out and if the teams stay the way they are now, then you're fine. Um but one injury to a quarterback on either side of play for any other team makes a huge difference. So, uh, you know, for all we know, like you're saving Kansas City and then someone goes down and now Kansas City is no longer 11 point favorite. Now they're a four point favorite. And on the other side of things, maybe you had a starting quarterback go down for another team. And that team's now bottom of the barrel team without that starting quarterback. So you can play, you know, you, you why, why you can plan the, the whole season out, know? but. You know, yeah, you can plan it out, thing. but the reality is, uh, biggest advice I'd give for survivor pools is to use your teams that are strong. If you want, to, if you have a good player right now that you think is going to be a little bit more contrarian to market, use it now. Don't plan out and say, "I need, I need Kansas City for Week 15." You don't know what's going to happen in Week 15. That, that's good advice. And another interesting thing about survivor pools, as it relates to game theory, is this whole idea of, of levels of strategy. So if you look at last weekend, there was one pretty obvious pick where where Buffalo was. I think minus 19 at the close um, against Houston. And then you have a quote unquote level zero strategy, which is just, okay, Buffalo's 90% the win. So I'm going to take them. Then you have the level one strategy, which says, okay, everyone else follows a level zero strategy. Everyone's going to take Buffalo. So I'm going to avoid Buffalo because I want to, I want to get that value. if They get eliminated. And then there's a level two strategy saying, well, everyone's going to avoid Buffalo because everyone thinks everyone else is going to take Buffalo and they're actually going to be underplayed. And I think that's kind of what happened because they yep. were only taken about 50% of, of the, of the picks. And I, I would have expected it to be uh, quite a bit higher than that, given they're probably the biggest favorite we're going to see all year. So I actually did end up taking Buffalo in my remaining survivor entry last week on that kind of level two strategy saying, well, everyone else is going to fade them to the point where they're actually going to be underpicked. And then you can go to level three strategy saying, well, everyone else is going to take them because everyone else thinks that no one else is going to take them. And it just, right. it just cyclical. So it's just cyclical forever. Love that. You have yourself Love nuts. That. I think last week was just one of those interesting ones because you had the Thursday nighter where Cincinnati was over a touchdown favorite and everyone was looking at it and being like, I don't think I'm going to be using Cincinnati at any point this year. So why not just use them now? And we had a few games like that where uh, New Orleans was over a touchdown favorite, Tennessee, teams that you typically would not be taking later in the year, or you look at their future schedule and say, I'm not really going to have another spot to take this team, so I'll do it now. And sometimes I think people just outsmart themselves where like, there's no sure win in the NFL. Let's make that very clear. But when you're getting a team that is 90% to win a game, 
if not more, uh, where you're estimating 40 to 50% of the pot of the people in the pool are going to pick them. Like that's obviously a no brainer at that point, uh, in terms of your expected value for the week. So that's the kind of stuff that goes into it. I do like survivor pools, wish I had more time and wish I actually had more different survivor pools because, uh, or, or like different, that's, that's not the right thing. Like in a dream world for me, there was, there's simultaneous NFL seasons happening where I have like a pool for each different season, which kind of strips out just the random luck of having that one season. But, um, one one can we should only get dream. into this we'll, we'll do a future episode i want to break down some pools like give out some even like you know edges on survivor pools or those pick em pools or things like that we'll do it we'll do it on a future episode matt i've written now, about the good, uh go ahead go ahead. i've written an article about the uh the one they have in ontario with proline the uh you pick uh just pick money lines on all oh, the games pro pools. so there's a pro pools. pro pools yeah so there's uh, an article i wrote uh, I think a year or two ago on that if anybody is uh, interested wants to check it out on my site I will, uh, I will check that one out. I, I, you know what? Actually, sorry, I did check it out. Was there, was it where there was like one person who had won a bunch of times? Jeffrey Sima, yes. <laughs> if you, if you're out there listening to this, uh, much respect to Jeffrey Sima. <laughs> I have no <laughs> idea who he is. So could be a so student more, for one of you guys, for all I know. The way a lot of those people play, the way a lot of the people play the those pro pools, um, where they're just taking a lot of chalky favorites they're going to end up winning so such a little amount that you're just better off just parlaying a 16 teamer uh, on a site. In my opinion, I can go two hours on that. So maybe we'll, uh, maybe we'll save that for a different episode. (laughs) Okay. So I'm going to get into the, uh, the billion dollar flip here. Popular question. We got a a couple requests to ask you this being an actuary and all. So the phrasing of the question is you get a coin flip. It's 50, 50, not a loaded coin. Uh, If you win the coin flip, you get a billion dollars directly right there. If you lose the coin flip, you're left with zero. What's your buyout that you'd accept to forego this coin flip? Is this a thing that's going around Twitter? I, I, I haven't really uh, I, seen we it. We started you guys it, mentioned so... it. Oh, you started it. Look at you guys influencing. Nah, we, we didn't start it. We'll, get, we'll give the background. So this, this famous YouTuber, Mr. Beast, he tweeted out saying uh, something like, would you guys want, like, would somebody rather have a 50-50 shot at 100 grand or would you buy out for five grand? And so many people on Twitter said they would buy it. It was like 85% would have bought out for the five grand, which, you know, for guys like Rob, I, you, um, I, I don't think there's a chance in which I, I would buy out of that flip, except, you know, above the, the expected value. So what we wanted to do was say, okay, let's make, you know, you can make it a million, but we said, let's make it a billion dollars. That way you can actually kind of go and really understand how people are thinking about this and generate some discussion of, you know, if you had the shot at a billion, a billion's a lot of money. It's something that, you know, the majority of people will never get to in their life. So that that's the stemming of the question, but it, it's a spin that the circle's off spin. I'm honored to be asked the, the, by the originators of the billion dollar flip question. Um, so so the first thing I'll say about this is it, it seems like a Kelly Criterion question, but it is not a Kelly Criterion question. Um, like I said a little while ago, one of the requirements to use the Kelly Criterion is you have to be able to have repeated opportunities at the same bet so you can grow your bankroll um, exponentially. So even though it seems like a Kelly Criterion question, I would not use the Kelly Criterion to answer this question. Um, I would use a theory called the utility of money, which is actually somewhat similar to the Kelly Criterion, but in a very different context. It's not about how to optimize the growth of your bankroll. It's about um, what is the value of money to you and, and you know, does, does, does the billionth dollar of your wealth 
increase your happiness or quality of life as much as the, the millionth dollar or the thousandth dollar of, of wealth. So I would take a, a strategy like that to answer that question, where at what point you know, are, are you wealthy enough that you, know, you, you have really as much freedom in life and freedom for your family that you could really ever want? And I would put that number probably around the, the, the 50 to $100 million range where I would, I would buy out of that number. So, so even though it would be a hugely minus EV um, decision to, to forego that coin flip, I think the certainty of being able to have a life-changing amount of money, um, there's a point where that is enough um, to, to accept that certainty in exchange for, for a trade-off of, of, of EV. I think that was um, a really well said answer, like very well described, very rational. You're right in around the same range as me, Matt. So that's why I'm giving you even more props on it because, but it's, it's also like the same that, that that's a bogus answer though. So why? Because, because this is a fair, this is a fair argument. It's a fair argument, Matt. So, so what would you say your number is? Give me a number, uh, you know, 75. Okay. Okay. So So if if you're you're taking 75, no chance you're not taking 74. There's just no, there's no way 75 could possibly be your break even that 74 is no good. It doesn't, that, that's not a number be, because w- it just doesn't make logical sense that 75 is life-changing money for you, but 74 is not. It's, a, it's in a no man's land range. Would you where, take 999 million? Of course you would. So there's, a, there's obviously some line you draw somewhere. For, for sure. No, I know there's some line you draw. So my... Again, I, the listeners have already heard this, but my my line is there's three ways to think of it. Number one is you need money. Any you need money right now. You're not in a good financial spot. At which case, your break you should be willing to accept five grand, ten grand, a hundred grand, depending on your financial situation. Very low end of the of the ladder here because that's just the reality. Is that money is worth more than the chance at that? You know, it's a, it's that is a better life to some people. A, like a hundred thousand is a significant better opportunity, and we understand that. Obviously, we are thankful for that. But uh, the second the second way of thinking is like, hey, I want to be set for life, and I want an amount of money that I'm set for life and I'm happy. But seventy five in all likelihood at this in. 2021 this like i know you know inflation who knows but uh at this time like 75 is it's just too like it's not 50 enough. no no i'm saying i'm saying it, it's too much to just say i'm happy with I'm, i want to be set for life like you most people I want my be, kids to be set for their lives too for sure my and grandkids. I, I, what i'm saying is i think 25 mil does that or 20 mil there's no instance in which 75 does it, but 74 doesn't. So my argument is if I were to tell you like, hey, I'm taking 501 million only, or I'm taking 500 and a penny, then you could say to me, well, you're not going to take 499 and I'm going to say no chance. And because that at that point, my answer is a principal thing of expected value. Your answer being 75 and Rob's answer being around the like, you know, same range. It's like, okay, well then you're going to take a dollar less than that too, because you're, you're willing to. Does this make sense to you, Matt, or no? Am I, am I, yeah, am it I makes sense to a point. The, I get it. There's a break even. At some point, there is a, a time where you say, you know what? Like, fuck it. I'm flipping the coin. Like, get out of here. Give me, the, give me the fucking coin. I wouldn't take $10. So at some point between $75 million and $10, you hit that point. And yeah, it's, it's sort of hard to pin where that point is because you're moving in such small increments. But it has to exist somewhere. Fair enough. Okay, so. I, I, that that is very valid though. Like it really is because these are hypotheticals, right? So we give our number, but and if I say I'm very much in the same range as you, Matt. So if I, even if I said a hundred million, and then all of a sudden somebody comes with a briefcase of fifty million, 
and says, well, you know, take it or leave it. Yeah. Or take it or you're flipping the coin. I'm taking like, I'm taking the 50 at that point. So, so my number is definitely 50 or lower than that. I mean, I, it's, we would it's, also put a lot more thought into this. If it was real, we would start thinking yes. about tax planning and <laughs> right. you know, estate planning and all the stuff that we're not just doing off the cuff here. And that's like I'm gonna take a little. I'm gonna take a little bit now. <laughs> I wanted a new. I wanted in installments, please. Yeah, that's the classic. Oh man, move. that's that's good. Okay, so from one uh, opportunity to uh, another, Rob, go ahead. Well, I mean, it's an opportunity only if you see it with your. You know, but uh, listen, Matt, we. I, I need to know why you're such a hater or a hatter, as the as the young kids would call it, of NFTs. Like this doesn't really make a lot of sense. We might as well throw Bitcoin in there as well, because I know you've had some real strong thoughts about the crypto community. Um, I thought you were a smart guy, so I'm I'm really trying to understand how you could be such a hater of these huge. Can you see me <laughs> wincing? Oh boy! So so. Maybe we'll do Bitcoin and NFT separately because I'm I'm slightly bearish on Bitcoin and I'm extremely bearish on on NFTs. <laughs> um, the, the the thing with Bitcoin, like you can make a case for Bitcoin as as some kind of a, a store of value and or a, a, a pseudo currency, and I think it's the, the volatility of it has gotten a little bit lesser um, in the last few months. Still volatile, but nowhere near um, what it used to be. The, the thing I'm afraid of with Bitcoin is there's going to be some event that is going to turn people off of it. And, and I always ask people who, who, who have a lot of Bitcoin, well, what's going to happen if you die? Or what's going to happen if you forget the password or lose the, 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 the cold storage drive or, you know, get it broken? Um, you know, your, your house floods and, and you have a million dollars of Bitcoin uh, in cold storage. It's now destroyed. And it isn't like you can you can call up your insurance and say, hey, I had a million dollars of Bitcoin on here. So I, I think people like decentralized um, decentralized things because they, they see all the pros of decentralization. But there are cons there, too. Like there is no if you die, um, you know, your next of kin can go to the bank and recover the money in your bank account by showing your death certificate and filling out some paperwork. There's nobody you can call for Bitcoin. And, and I, I like to tease people who, who say, hey, they're having a problem with, with you know, I, I lost my Bitcoin wallet or I, I can't recover my Bitcoin. I say to them, well, why don't you just call Bitcoin customer service and complain? Well, there is no Bitcoin customer service. And that's, <laughs> what, you get. <laughs> that's what you get with decentralization. There, there, there's bad as well as good. So I, I'm afraid that something, somebody will die, and lose a whole bunch of Bitcoin, or there will be some kind of a hack or something, even though they say it's impossible. You can't prove something is impossible. Um, well, but 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 my, Matt, my counterpoint would be that those things have already happened. Like a lot of them have happened. Like Quadriga, which was a major exchange in Canada, their owner just disappeared, and nobody could access the exchange anymore. And he just effed off with literally millions of dollars that were inaccessible to people anymore. Which was a thing for like a week, and a lot of people were upset and said, oh, "I lost a lot of money keeping my." Um, dollars on Quadri the Quadriga exchange. And I mean, in reality, it was not even really a setback for- uh, They were lucky because the, mar the market shrugged it off. Um, I think if it had happened to the wrong person in the wrong position of power at the wrong time, the, the, the result would have been different. So yeah, I think that the community has survived a couple of these, what I would call smaller shocks because I don't think Quadriga was a huge player in, in the no. In the Bitcoin, same with Mount Gox back, whatever number of years ago. I mean, these things have happened, um, 
but I think the real shock event would be it happening either to a, a person or organization or on a scale that it sort of makes waves in the global community and it still could happen in the future. Um, NFTs. So the thing, <laughs> the thing about NFTs that, that, that I really have trouble with is the, the, the appeal of NFTs is you get to own something. And I think that we are getting too hung up on ownership without really thinking about what ownership means in a digital world where you can copy things for free. And, and I bring this point up, people say, oh, well, well, you know, you don't understand what, what it means to be able to own something. You can say you own it. Okay, well, who cares? Like there, there, there's this whole thing of, of scarcity where, okay, there's only 10,000 of these crypto apes or, or whatever or what was trending today. It was uh, something about- They're all, they're all trending about, every day. talking about crypto dick butts. Dick butts, thank you for for for. Uh, no, those those might go up though, Matt. Dick butts are legit. Yes, I I I, I understand. I, I mean, they, they it's not a might go up. Like those are going to go up in the short term. It's just a whether of whether or not they retain their value long term. Well, that's it. There's scarcity. No, no, this is not financial advice. Sorry to cut everyone off. You know, don't buy a dick butt if it's beyond your means. It's hilarious. This okay, is financial Matt's advice. Financial advice. Do not buy crypto dick butts. Um, because the the any time you get people getting rich quick, the, the market gets flooded with any number of people who are, some of them might be well-intentioned, some might be out and out scammers, but everyone's going to pile in. So what you get is, okay, you now own a limited, one of a limited number of things, but there is a large number of those different things, each of which having a limited run. And the market's going to get saturated at some point. Maybe we're not there yet. Uh, maybe we are. But what I will say is that when these things, when the party ends, it's not going to be a, a slow kind of controlled parachute down to earth. It is going to be a crash. And I do not want to be there when that happens. And when that happens, you're really left with the intrinsic value of, of this NFT, which is really nothing because you don't have any of the rights that would normally come with ownership. You, you don't have copyright. You know, you can't sell prints of whatever this art uh, piece is that you have an NFT of. So a lot of them you can. A lot of them, Some you, them can. you can. Okay. Some of them you yeah. can. Actually, I would go as far as to say like almost all of them you can now of the new ones. But yes, yeah, some of the older ones, you're right. And CryptoPunks, it's you know, capped at a it's certain amount of profit. K, so. I think, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the most important right that you have as an owner of one of these things is the right to sell it to somebody else. And then you get this sort of recursion and why would they buy it from you if they have no intrinsic rights? So th this is just my opinion. I could be wrong. I've been wrong about a lot of things before, but, but I, I think that the fact that nothing really gives it value and you could say, well, nothing gives gold value either, but what gives that gold value is thousands of years of history of gold having value. And then you get into what Taleb calls the Lindy effect, which is the longer something has been around, the more likely it is to be around for an indefinite period in the future. And, and that's why I would find, I would have more confidence investing my money in gold, all else equal than investing my money in NFTs, either though neither of them really has a whole ton of intrinsic value. Um, maybe gold's a bad example because it does have some, some industrial uses, something like you know diamonds or, or, or pick your own kind of precious uh, substance, because at least these things aren't likely to crash because they have that faith from them being around for a whole bunch of time. NFTs don't have that same, and I know people use the word Lindy in the NFT space because I've seen it, um, but I think 
you know, when you talk about Lindy and NFT, you're talking about, well, my project's been around for six months. Yours has been around for six days. So mine is better. And that's probably true. But NFTs as a whole, I just don't see it. Again, I could be wrong, but it's not something that I would, I would invest a, a dime of my own money in. I appreciate your viewpoints. And, and this is not a pod where I'm just going to argue with you for the next half hour because I disagree because I, I don't think that... I think getting your viewpoint is actually... Uh, very advantageous to listeners who've probably heard our side of things for a while now. The only thing I'll say to you is I actually agree with a lot of what you said. I do think that the NFT market as a whole is largely a bubble and there's going to come crashing down at some point. I do think that there are specific NFTs within that entire market that will retain their value and continue to increase in value over time. So I don't think, I don't think this is applicable to the whole market. And I'll say the same thing about crypto. I'm never advising people to go out and buy, you know, Cum Rocket and Shibu Ina and whatever. Like, like this is not, these are, these are jokes is frankly what they are. And sure, people might make a little bit of money off it in the short term. But also if that tanks, see you later. You're not, you're never getting your, like, it's done. It's over. I'm, I think Bitcoin and Ethereum will sustain their value, increase in value over the long run. But I think 95%, even more of these cryptos are completely worthless and useless. And people will eventually see that. And I think a lot of that money will actually filter into Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, over time. So I do agree with a lot of what you're saying. Uh, I just like to separate the market as a whole from individual uh, cryptos or NFTs within that market itself. For sure. And I've had talks with, with Johnny uh, offline about it as well. And he says a similar thing that, you know, the, the, uh, Dick butts are only phase one and, and you know, what's going to come in the future is going to be a lot more, more valuable. And then he might be right. I, I personally haven't seen enough to convince me of that, but I at least accept the argument. To be clear, I am actually bullish on dick butts. So I'll, I'll, I'll let that, I'll let that hit. Like I am, I'm not crypto or that. regular crypto dick butts. Yeah. No, the OGs uh, obviously should have gone in earlier. The crypto dick butt OGs are worth a lot more, but the, you know, V3 dick butts, I think there's op not like I'm not even gonna give financial advice. Nah, we might have to cut this out. No, no, it's side. it's here. Like, I mean, listen. Uh, all I'm saying is this. Like, I, I'm I'm the way I, the way I see it is like, okay, Matt, you know how you're saying, oh, gold has value because it's been around for two thousand years. Like, I don't think people really even care about that. Like, in the people who own gold is only getting like old. They're only getting older and older every year. And the people who are coming into the new school of things, like, if you think about how much has changed. Like 25, 30 years ago, like we didn't even have the internet. It didn't even exist. You could, you'd have to call someone on a, a telephone. And then like, you know, X amount of years before then, you didn't even have the phone. You just had to send a letter to someone. Like think about how much stuff develops over time. So to say like, oh, oh gold is valuable, like, cause it has, cause it's a physical thing. Like I actually think that's a net negative that it is an, an actual thing. Like I, I think- It can be cause you have to pay to store it and insurance on it. And, and, and really the, the ownership of it, of your gold is just like, it's there. It's the same thing, but it's just the transferability is, is so like, you can't transfer it. So if you're a collector, for example, of sports memorabilia, it's awesome. But whenever you want to buy a, a new piece, you got to get that mailed to someone. Whenever you want to sell, you got to mail, you have to transfer, you go state cross states. Like how do you, how do you sell art? How do you sell all these things? It, it's so difficult in the current form. And while the NFT space is not perfect, there's a lot of stuff wrong with it. It's quite expensive right now with all the gas fees and stuff like that. But the ability to transfer ownership just like that in a smart contract where all you have to do is just post up your price. And then if someone like sends you the money, it just automatically transfers it for you. Like these have so many 
other use cases that are not just going to be for crypto dick butts. And while in the short term, like crypto dick butts could the go short term up, dick butts also, are what you get. They also could they also could go they also could go down. They also could go down. But it, and it's it's just like it's funny that it's funny. But on either end of this of the spectrum, like you know, okay, Dogecoin is it useful? No, it sucks. What does it do? Nothing. What's the use? Nothing. What's the scarcity? Nothing. But has it gone up? Yes. Could you have made actual money in that? Yes, because there was enough liquidity in it. So look at the amount of accounts that uh, uh, like a platform like OpenSea has. So we talked this with Preston, like OpenSea is just scratching the surface on how many people are actually on it. And now look at how many of those um, traders or how, how many like day traders or, you know, whatever you want to call them, kids or, you know, uh, recreational traders bought GameStop. Like how many people bought GameStop? It was legitimately 100 times the amount of people that even have an OpenSea account bought GameStop. So when we're looking at that, it's like the these meme coins and these little things like that. Like if people want them, sure, they might not have value in the long term, but they're still going to have some sort of value. And I actually think at this point, like historic significance, yeah, gold, it's gold. It's what everything was built on and stuff like that. But to you know, put that into the crypto term when you're putting on like crypto punks or Bitcoin, like those now also have some historical significance. While I will never say, oh, this crypto punks are more historic than gold. No, of course not. But it has that significance. In it. There, there, well, there is a lesson that we can learn from gold and, and feel free to correct me, either you or any of our listeners, if I get the history not entirely right on this. But there was a period, uh, I think early in the 20th century where the government made it illegal to own gold. Uh, because there was so much inflation going on in the economy and they didn't, they didn't want to give up that control over, over the money supply. And that could very easily happen with, with crypto because people, one of the use cases of crypto is um, a way of, of uh, fighting against uh, centralized monetary policy and even fighting against taxation. And, and governments, when they see that, you know, do you think they're going to give up without a fight? Do you think they're going to say, well, we've been controlling the money supply for forever and okay here's crypto well we're just gonna you know okay we had our fun now now party's over no they're gonna they're gonna take some some defensive measures and who knows what that could look like but i don't think governments are are apt to um, let go of the control that they have right now without at least some kind of a fight sure but the u.s government is collecting bitcoin as well like this is the the, the it's not a scenario where it's just like none of these gov these governments are hedging against that being a possibility in general by collecting that themselves. You obviously know the story about El Salvador this year making it a a currency as well. So I I think you what you, what you're describing is very is possible, but I would call it unlikely. That's my personal point of view. Agree to disagree. It's been a good conversation. If we think in probable if we think probab probabilistically, probabilistically here, Matt, exactly. What would you say? <laughs> But but we don't have to agree on what that probability is. But yes, I, I am thinking probabilistically, and I do think that that's a potential outcome. I just think it's unlikely. But uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Matt. Wait wait well, let's 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 uh let's go on one more question, Matt. This is more just on the Bitcoin stuff, not on the the crypto in general. But a lot of times you mentioned no 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 on on Bitcoin. So you I. Oftentimes you have said, ah, Bitcoin. Like, what's so good about this? It, it actually is kind of hard to use, and it takes a long time to transfer. And everyone knows that it does take, and oftentimes it could take, you know, 20 minutes for your thing to get there if the network's jammed. And sometimes the transaction fees are high. You know, if you look at a time like right now, you're going to be able to transfer something in one minute for 20 cents, right? Just because network fees are, are a lot lower right now. But in general, it could get higher. 
But what I wanted to ask Matt was like in the event where you want to transfer someone an amount of money via the traditional banking system, like how long does that take? Like think about it for logically. Like if you wanted to send $100,000 or $50,000 overseas right now, how many days would it take before that person who you wanted to send it to actually had access to those funds? Because in the majority of cases, you know, it's a lot longer than 20 minutes. It's going to be more than 20 minutes for you to get to get off the couch and go to the bank. Yeah. And th th there's definitely a scale issue here. So Bitcoin, the nice thing about Bitcoin, and I'll give it that, is it, it, the, the ease of transaction is the same whether you're sending, you know, $10 or $10 million because it's just, it's, it's just it doesn't, there's nothing that, that is, is correlated with the size of the transaction. Um, you know, if I wanted to send you 50 bucks through e-transfer, I could do it in three seconds. Um, but if I wanted to send you millions and millions of dollars, then you're right, especially if you're sending it, you know, halfway around the world. So I think there, there, there is a point of transaction size at which point um, Bitcoin becomes more efficient than the traditional banking system. I think that that number is probably higher than what a lot of people would use for day-to-day for -day banking, but it is there. I'll give you that. Well, we, do we have any more listener questions to go through that we want to get in here really quickly? Uh, let me take a quick sc uh, scroll through. Um, somebody asked this one, I think this is actually their second time asking it was, uh, if somebody has the opportunity to place a wager that is better than Pinnacle or Bookmaker no vig line, is that an auto bet or an auto edge? So I will go as far as to say, I'll, I'll take it real quick and then we'll let Matt give his opinion on this. Uh, definitely not. So like those are, yeah, those are the most efficient line, but you're not going to make money if you have a chance to beat the pinnacle Novig line by a cent or two, like give yourself some sort of buffer where, yeah, if you're beating the Novig line by 2% every time, then that's, and you're going to quantify roughly a 2% edge. That's fine. But you have to have a threshold in which you're willing to play. Like playing just the Novig line is, is not a recipe for uh, all time success. Yeah. Anytime somebody says, Hey, is this an auto bet or would you do this all the time? It, it, it's kind of troll baity because if I say yes, someone's going to say, well, have you thought about the situation where you know, <laughs> some, some obscure combination of, of circumstances to make it the case? Um, so I, I guess I would say, no, I wouldn't auto bet it. That being said, I, I would, I would definitely bet it in, in the vast majority of cases. And the, the question I would ask myself is the person who's offering me this number at a, at a better line, that pinnacle of Novig line, do I have reasonable reason to believe that they are sharper or even or even comparably sharp to pinnacle? And if the answer is no, because it, it's just you know some guy off the street or some you know I, I, there's no no reason to believe they're sharp, then yeah, I absolutely would take that every time. But if the person offering me that this this line is on a prop market where pinnacle's taking two hundred and fifty dollars and you're taking ten thousand and you're giving me a different line. Um, you know, I'd probably turn around and bet at a pinnacle using your line as the, as the efficient line. I'll just add to that. You also have to consider the possibility that they might bet into the market, move that line, and then your bet is no longer plus EV either. Like I can tell you from personal experience, how many times I've offered a bet that is better than the current market price. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. I'll take that. Like rather than going to bet it at a sports book. And then the next day it's no longer a good price because whoever offered me that bet just bet into the screen and move that. So that's also something I, th I think 
Mark, to be considered. Market manipulation is an interesting thing to think about, and I have no idea how much of it is going on. And there's nothing illegal about it, like there would be manipulating the stock market. So, right. so it, it's it's very conceivable that some of these these sharp guys out there, and I mean, head fakes are one example of it. You know, those are happening, but. How, how much action coming into the market is for the sake of, of manipulating the market because you know may, maybe you have a hundred outs at soft books that copy pinnacle's line so you push pinnacle's line the opposite direction everyone copies it and you hit that there like i'm i'm sure that's going on because how could it not be um but you know to the extent wh where is it happening how much is it happening you know I, I really don't have enough insider information to know that right Matt, Proline Plus, the new regulated sports book in Ontario. I saw you tweet about this, uh, that it's actually you know much sharper than you thought. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Any edges to be had? So when it came out, I, I was excited because, you know, knowing how poorly the Ontario government sports books have been in the past at running sports books, the, 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 my, my ears were pricked up in terms of what kind of opportunities would be out there. Um, but when I looked at it, there really weren't a ton of opportunities um, to be had. I found a couple of couple of lines that were, you know, a, a percent or two off market. And, you know, I put my deposit and I put a thousand bucks in and I, I, I lost it betting numbers that were, you know, a one or two percent edges that just happened to lose. Um, and I, I just kind of left it at that because it, the, the markets, um, you know, the, the they were not slow to, to move, at least as far as I could uh, tell. They, they, have a, they have a provider who I think is called uh, FDJ, Francais de Jeux, based out of France. And, and they seem to be doing a, a decent job at, at, at keeping the numbers as sharp as they, they can. Um, I've also seen some stories on Twitter about sharps being limited. Um, so that made me say, well, okay, even if I'm able to get some, some edges out of this, you know, it's probably not going to be worth my time because I'll be, I'll be limited as soon as it, it happens. So, um, I think from a recreational better perspective, the offering is quite good. The interface is kind of so-so, but the, the VIG is decent. I think in a lot of the major sports, it's on par with what you could get, um, not at pinnacle, but it's somewhere like uh, bet three six five. You know, you're you're around minus one ten on all these markets, which is better than I would have expected from kind of government run books. Um, but uh, and then the, the the amount of of markets they're offering is is really really uh, deep. So that's nice too. Um, so I would say it, it's a decent offering for a recreational better, but from an advantage player, it has been underwhelmed unless somebody has seen something that I haven't. I think that's a fairly good breakdown. I mean, it's important to understand that this is a, an operator that's in its infancy in this space in terms of running just a, a regular sports book. Um, so there's a lot of ups and downs. I, I mean, we saw this in the U.S. regulated market, obviously, with uh, operators rushing into market, um, really trying to put a product together in a short amount of time and uh, versus where those operators are at now. Now, granted, I might not be great for a lot of pro betters in the sense that they've gone with a very risk averse approach, but I think the products themselves have improved significantly over time for the core of their player base. Um, so I'm interested to see what um, happens in Ontario when the Ontario government does start taking um, license or start giving out licenses um, for people who applied and whether it becomes very overly saturated in Ontario very quickly, or it's a more gradual process that remains to be seen. Uh, but I think just as a sports better, Matt, in general, the more outs that we have and the more books that are available to us, the better our edge is going to be. I mean, that's just common sense, right? 
Oh, for sure. And yeah, like you, I'm looking forward to, to where it gets really opened up and you, know, you get DraftKings and FanDuel and PointsBet and the score coming in and everyone's competing for business and they have promos and bonuses and everything. And, and yeah, we probably end up getting kicked out of each of those, uh, those outs over time, but hopefully we'll be able to, to win a decent amount of money uh, before that happens. For sure. Uh, so Matt, you said you talked about the course earlier. Uh, tell people where they can uh, sign up if they want to join your course, if you want to give a plug there and also your website. Yeah. So my website is plusevanalytics.com. Um, you can also find me at analytics.bet. Um, and my course is called Bayesian Sports Betting. And you can find it at analytics.bet slash BSB. Uh, courses are starting in January. They're going to be on Tuesday evenings, uh, one hour a week for a period of 12 weeks. Um, there, there, There is a cost and it's not cheap, but it's not going to be for everyone. I'll be upfront about that. But I think if you're if you're serious about wanting to improve your skills as a modeler in the sports betting world, using some techniques that are really hard to find other places and are especially hard to find explained in, in ways that you don't need, you know, a calculus background uh, to to understand them. Um, I think it's going to be worth uh, worth your money. I'll actually uh, let you know here. I think this is the first time I'm ever announcing this, that, that we are going to be doing the first class of Bayesian sports betting for free uh, online. It's going to be likely on Tuesday, November the 16th. So listeners might want to mark your calendar for November 16th. Um, and uh, there will be details coming on my Twitter feed for how to sign up for that. So what we're going to do is the first class will be free. And uh, if, if you sign up, you will still get access to 12 live classes. The recording of, of, uh, of class one, if you missed it, you will get classes two through 12 from me, and you will get a bonus class from a guest lecturer that uh, is to be announced. So um, yeah, I, I would love to have you uh, there with me. I, I feel bad sometimes because people ask me a lot of questions on Twitter and they're really good questions and I'd love to answer them. I just don't have enough hours in the day to, to answer all the questions people ask me, um, but you will get access to a, a Slack chat as part of analytics.bet where, where I will be uh, more, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll spend more time um, interacting with people on there than I can with uh, the general public on Twitter. So analytics.bet. All right, Matt, we close with the same question with every one of our guests. If you could go back five years and give a previous version of yourself some advice, what would it be? I'm probably older than a lot of your, your previous guests because five years ago I was doing pretty much the same thing I'm doing today. Um, but if I, if I go back, uh, let's go 10 years, a decade or, or two, whatever. Yeah. When I was, when I was really learning how to do this stuff. Um, one thing I, I would have told myself is to slow down and really learn with a deep level of understanding how to do this. Because a lot of these, these mathematical techniques that I'm applying now, I learned them 10, 15, 20 years ago. And I learned them, for the sake of being able to, to do well on the exam to test this material. And, and I was able to get myself kind of a good enough level of understanding to, to pass the exams. But when it came time to actually apply the material, you know, just memorizing formulas wasn't going to cut it. You have to be able to apply this stuff. So I found myself having to go back and relearn it in a way that I could understand it deeply. I could apply it. And I could teach it to other people. So again, this is back to the, the course. I am not, there, there are no exams in the analytics.bet course. We are not teaching it to you for the sake of being able to pass an exam. I am teaching it to you with the aim of giving you a deep enough level of standing 
that you can go and build models on your own and, and apply it. So that's the one thing I would have told myself is, is don't take shortcuts. Don't just memorize it for the sake of being able to pass the exam. Understand it deeply. Good advice. It's Matt plus EV analytics. Thank you for joining us, Matt. Really appreciate it. I know we went pretty long with you, but uh, some passionate discussion, especially around the NFTs and Bitcoin, but also some really good advice to people who listened out there. Um, so appreciate your time. And for everyone for listening, yeah, no problem at all. Uh, for everyone listening, uh, please, if you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review five stars if you can. Uh, check out Betstamp if you can as well. Download it on Android or iOS uh, or check us out at betstamp.app. This has been episode number 28 of the Circles Off podcast. We will see you again next week.